0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. You know all those brash and sassy young female book authors who tell the world about how they became a feminist badass? Well, Megan Dom isn't one of them. In fact, she almost called her new book, You Are Not a Badass, because she was so tired of seeing feminism being interpreted as a series of aggressive, performative postures. As Dom argues in her new book, The Problem with Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars, the most empowering kind of feminism is the kind that vests women with a sense of resilience and agency, not just a weaponized ideology for expressing complaints and bringing down men. But Dom, a veteran essayist and pundit who's in her late 40s, also knows that every generation has a lot to learn from the ones that come after. And her new book isn't simply one long lecture to younger readers. She also talks about the things that her generation— which is also my generation, got wrong. She also has much to say about cancel culture, gender roles, the joys of living in New York City, and the cultural legacy of the 70s-era kids' shows we both watched, including Zoom, that slightly odd public television cousin to Sesame Street, an electric company. I spoke with Megan Dom at the Yale Club in New York City earlier this week. Here are excerpts from that interview. So you write in one of the opening chapters that your original title for this book was you are not a badass.
2: Yeah, there were many working titles for this book. You are not a badass came out of my original idea which was started germinating back in I'd say pr- probably even late 2015 early 2016. So I you know, I grew up right alongside second wave feminism. Okay, I was born in 1970. I remember being 12 years old and sitting in my kitchen with my mother when we heard on NPR that the Equal Rights Amendment had not been ratified. My mother was very much a second-wave feminist, and I grew up in the 70s and the 80s really having a sense of myself as totally equal to boys as a girl i didn't think if anything the girls were doing better than the boys so you know it was interesting to me you know having gone through my 20s with more women going to college than men and you know this feeling of women really catapulting above men had continued throughout the first several decades of my life and so starting around 2015 i started to notice that the default conversation around women was that we were under the thumb of this patriarchy, that we were somehow this monolithic group that was oppressed in some way. So much so that even doing the most basic things, getting out of bed every morning, going to work, paying your rent, facing down the patriarchy at every turn made you a badass. And so this concept arose and sometimes it was hashtag badass or you would see it on t-shirts, on mugs, and it became this trope and I found it silly and overused to the point where it's like it, the bar for being a badass was so low. The bar for a self-respecting woman was so low. And, and it really seemed to defeat the purpose of feminism. So You Are Not a Badass came out of that frustration, which was the original impetus for the book.
1: Okay, well, hold on there because I'm going to engage in one of my favorite sports, which is policing how women do feminism. Please. Yeah. That's
2: why I came here.
1: <laughs> so I have I have daughters. And one thing I notice is that if you look at the aesthetic on a lot of like the T-shirts and the gear they have, even if it's, say, some kind of Transylvanian or Gothic thing, there's always like a lot of combat boots and girl power. And usually like it's spelled in a weird way, like it's G-U-R. G-U, uh,
2: yes, the Riot Girl right. spelling, yes. Yeah.
1: The more extra letters you have, the more feminist it is. <laughs> and so I'm making fun of it, but I, I don't mind it. Like it's it seems assertive and self-confident. Is there an upside to this badass feminism?
2: Well, there are many iterations of it, and actually part of the reason that the book is not called You Are Not a Badass and really extended well beyond a conversation around women was that it is so diffuse at this point. I was really... I, I was frustrated with this kind of social media expression, the kind of... The, the badass was then, then became the person who was, like, going on the subway and snapping photos of men who were manspreading and then putting them on the Internet and... And engaging in ideas about toxic masculinity and and all these notions that really don't mean anything, but came to signal a certain kind of ethos that became trendy. And to me, it was like a substitute for actual real feminism. To me, real feminism doesn't have to advertise itself. Like if you are actually a person with agency and, and an individual who makes her own choices and doesn't think a lot about herself vis-a-vis men or anybody who would have more or less power, then that's how one should go through life. I do not think wearing a t-shirt that says badass or even the future is female in rhinestone lettering, I think it defeats the purpose. Now, having said that, like I said, the book is no longer just about that because By the time 2017, 18 rolled around, the conversation around all these sort of social justice pieces was so much broader and actually so much more dynamic and and more interesting than just the woman thing.
1: What makes your book so interesting, especially when you talk about yourself, is that you're not really holding yourself up as a paragon of any particular wave of feminism. You interrogate yourself. Uh, You tell one long series of anecdotes about a relationship, I'm not even sure you would call it a relationship with with an older man, where he was clearly interested in you, he was a little bit creepy, but you kind of kept going on these half dates with him, and if this were you as a younger person telling the story in 2019 it might be you portraying yourself 100% as victim. Instead, in regard to this story, you tell a fairly complex tale of two people satisfying maybe emotional needs they don't really understand. When you tell stories like that to younger women, How do they respond to something like that? Do they simply not understand what's going on? Or do they try to insist that you were the victim of something?
2: I think they would try to insist that I'm in denial. One of the big criticisms that comes up is that I'm using my own privilege. I'm, I'm hiding behind my own white feminism and not understanding the greater dimensions of this. So that interaction that you described, I would not call it, I mean, everything's a relationship between people, but it was a, it was a, colleague. It was a somebody in the same business. I was a young, aspiring writer. I was in my early to mid-20s, certainly not even, not older than 25 when this started. And it was somebody who was in, you know, a, a position of power, but in no unilateral way. I was always a freelancer. I was not working in an office under this person. And it started off as, oh, you know, let's have a business lunch, I'll give you advice, maybe I can help you, et cetera, et cetera. And then it just, you know, there were more lunches and they would go on for longer, and then it turned into dinners. And I'm gonna be clear, like, this man never made any overt advances. There was never a sense of quid pro quo. What was happening more is that I felt as a young person that I had a professional obligation to myself to keep going on these lunches and dinners because, God forbid, I should squander some kind of career opportunity. So it was really subtle. And and I want to also emphasize that this guy... He was in a real personal crisis of his own. The the power dynamic between us, it, it was really shifting. And in a, in a lot of ways, it was in my favor. I, I could have made one phone call and made his life hell on any number of levels.
1: I mean, in a way, you could still do that. I guess it would be perfectly consistent with some modern trends for you to identify this person, which you don't in the book. No. And tell the entire story in a way that makes you the victim
2: yeah and i have no interest in that that's not applicable to anything i'm saying and in fact i honestly had not even thought about this person and these encounters for decades until in the wake of me too i noticed on facebook there was a discussion going on about um a particular guy and a our particular business and the lunches that he went on with young aspiring female writers and these women were kind of chiming in and describing this and I thought oh that's weird because it kind of sounds like you know my guy from back then and then I thought no no way it can't be the same person because they were talking about it in these terms that where they felt so much more powerless than I had they really felt sort of victimized by him and I didn't relate to it
1: just to be clear this isn't an anti-me too book you've written no Uh, you acknowledge that there were necessary things about the me too movement to the extent you've written a culture war book you seem to identify somebody who's caught in between where you really have genuine contempt for the sexual predators out there and people who go around harassing women but then you're also disgusted with the obsessively victim-centric fallout from that do you see yourself as somebody who's caught in between two poles of a culture war
2: Yes, and frankly, I think anyone who's honest with themselves is also caught in a lot of ways. You know, anything that is true is complicated anything that is true is going to make you feel conflicted in some way. And I think part of what's happening in this moment is that we're so unable to just sit with our own confusion and our own conflicting thoughts and interpretations that we've decided that everything is one way or the other. I, in fact, I, I think this is a pro Me Too book in a lot of ways, because if you really care about Me Too at its root, what it started off as doing, if you care about changing social norms when it comes to men and seriously abusing their power then you really want to be careful about how you're going about it it's I'm calling for just really greater nuance across the board in any kind of discussion around these culture war issues we need more nuance and less just blanket outrage
1: well of course the question of nuance came through vividly there's a discussion of the Aziz Ansari case where it sounds like that was a flashpoint for maybe some older women to say look being raped and being made to feel uncomfortable on a date with a guy you don't like that much when you're free to go at any time is not the same thing.
2: Yeah, Daphne Merkin wrote a piece in the New York Times articulating very much what you just said and was really shamed for it, scolded, called an old irrelevant second wave feminist, You know, the okay boomer of its time. Yeah, that was the moment where I think the generational divide became so pronounced. I think everybody was on board when it was Harvey Weinstein. The Aziz Ansari case, it was like, you know, for me, I'm forty nine. I read that as like you said, a, a, a bad date. It was
1: an awkward date.
2: It was it was awkward and it was icky. It was icky. I feel like there's a lot of this is just ickiness and we we need to sort of maybe have a Somebody needs to write a book about icky. People have icky relationships <laughs> like right. it's not. Yes. <laughs> unfortunately,
1: there's no cure for ickiness. Unfortunately. No. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it's, it's 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 life in the big city. You know, the, the thing about the Aziz case was that, you know, my first instinct was to be one of those older feminists who was like, oh, you know, grow up. You can get out of the situation. I think Caitlin Flanagan wrote something like, you know, you don't know how to call a cab like this is very this is very simple. But the thing with this book is is I wanted to sort of use that divide as a starting point rather than the end point. I think it's really less interesting to sort of sit here and hammer away at how the millennials need to toughen up and the older people you know, are right about everything. It's much to me more compelling to say, okay, why are these differences here? What are the conditions that made my generation the way we are? How have the conditions changed that have made millennials and Gen Zers the way we are? And let's look at that.
1: You obviously think that that, that younger women, younger feminists can learn a lot. But have you yourself changed your attitudes when you listen to, to younger women? Is it possible that a lot of the stuff that you had to endure when you were younger, you shouldn't have had to endure it. There's stuff that you described to the normal friction of life with men that was just not okay.
2: I think that's part of it. I have to say that when I started this project, one of my working theories in the book is that Generation X people fetishize toughness. We're all about being aloof, about being cool. You saw it in terms of the way we interacted with each other. We are
1: so cool though.
2: We we are still cool. But it's like you look back on it, like bullying was a huge thing growing up in the 70s and the 80s. It was just tolerated. It was seen as part of the social hierarchy of any middle school, any high school. And so I think we kind of got off on our own toughness in a certain way. And I think that millennials and Gen Zers, Zillennials, apparently they're now called. I just learned this recently. Please don't say that okay. word again. I we that's... can bleep that. Um, they may have a similar maybe overvaluation of ideas around justice and fairness. But in the course of writing this, I've come around to thinking that one way is not better than the other. Like, we need to sort of exchange the, the toughness and fairness. And I also think, yes, yeah, social media dictates a lot of this. But the fact is, we grew up with, like, there are so many conditions, cultural conditions that... Millennials had to contend with that. We just did not. We did not have ubiquitous online pornography. I think that there are sexual expectations with younger people that we just never came up against.
1: On the other hand, there's a certain puritanical conservatism to the habits of young people. And I see it with my own kids. If they're at a party, they know that anything they do, any person in the room can take a picture or a video. As a result, When I watch the way they conduct themselves with their peers, there is a studied courtesy and ritualized form of discussion that they have. When I was a kid, I said way more outlandish things. And my friends said way more outlandish things, knowing that 10 seconds later, people would forget it.
2: Right. Everything was Snapchat. It was like real life Snapchat. The,
1: The ubiquitous nature of cameras in everyone's pockets makes people conservative and fearful. And is that part of the phenomenon? Because we keep talking about it like cancel culture is a progressive phenomenon. It seems to me there is a certain conservative impulse about it. Oh, yeah. Well,
2: this is the horseshoe theory, right? It used to be the right were the purity police. We had Jesse Helms. We had... Chipper Gore, even though she was a Democrat. a you know, majority. That's right. Uh, and now we're seeing it on the left. But again, I think it's too easy to just say, well, uh, we're right and they're wrong, and this has gone too far, and these are excesses. That is true to some degree, but why is it happening? It would be horrifying to know that anything you said could be recorded. Anything you did would, could have a photograph taken of it.
1: One problem seems to be that if somebody in your past has done something bad to you, you can either ignore it, or you can name them and shame them and do the equivalent of the, the shitty men in media list, which you talk about in your, yeah. in your book. It, it seems like there needs to be some middle ground. Saying, so-and-so did something to me. It wasn't the greatest thing. I'd prefer if they don't do it again. But I don't want them to lose their job and get hounded off the internet. Is there any possibility of, like, a middle road response? To- I think
2: that has to be the next step. I- I'm, I'm not the one to design the app or the platform or the protocol to engineer that. But yeah, there's right now, it's just the wild west. I mean, you think about that, that Me Too has been going on for what, two years. It's a nanosecond. It's just, we're still figuring this out. We're still figuring out men and women working together. It's only been a few decades that women have been in the workplace in, at least in corporate settings. I mean, obviously women have been in working class jobs and factory jobs and there's all there have been many many me too really lives in those places more than these high profile examples okay we know that but i, I think we need to kind of just give ourselves a, a break here and say all right this is this is brand new we're still figuring this out and let's maybe start talking about what's actually happening so we can set some ground rules
1: We've reached the midpoint in this Quillette podcast, which we will resume very shortly. But first, a short message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, an online counseling service that helps people become happier and more productive. By logging on at BetterHelp, you can connect with your professional licensed counselor in a safe and private online environment according to your own pace and schedule, using secure video or phone sessions, as well as online chat and text. Some of the specialties of BetterHelp counselors include depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, sleep trouble, and trauma. BetterHelp uses a network of 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states, and you can switch therapists at no charge to make sure you find the right fit. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. And of course, anything you share with the professionals at BetterHelp is strictly confidential. Quillette podcast listeners get ten percent off their first month's service by using the discount code Quillette. If you'd like to know more, please go to BetterHelp.com/Quillette. That's BetterHelp.com/Quillette. And now back to our podcast. You reminded me of a show because we're about the same age that we both watched there was Sesame Street, there was Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, there was Electric Company, and then there was this kind of weird, slightly drugged-out show called Zoom.
2: (laughs) You thought it was drugged-out? Well, in retrospect, there was a sort of like... Yeah, the stripes.
1: It was sort of like an almost adolescent version of Teletubbies, where there was like a lot of people wearing cult clothing and doing unexplained dances and stuff like that. But as you write, it was this what we would now call very gender neutral or even gender non-conforming performative space. And even as a kid, I didn't know quite what to think about it. But as you describe it, it was a gender non-binary thing. And you describe how actually you yourself, you know, you were a tomboy in some respects. And you were deconstructing gender without really knowing you were deconstructing gender. We sometimes talk about how there's this brave new phenomenon of people pronouncing themselves to be, you know, free of the gender binary, it's been going on for decades. And in fact, people were much more free to break gender definitions maybe in the 70s uh, than they were in the 90s.
2: Well, this, I mean, this is what really troubles me. I feel like we're in this moment now where we're kind of snipping the ends off of the spectrum of gender identification. I mean, I had an argument with my students. I teach graduate students and about, you know, I said, you know, there's a lot of ways to be male and female to present yourself. And, you know, we were talking about Patty Smith or something like that. And a couple of people said, well, Patty Smith is transgender. She would be transgender if, if you know, the technology had been available back then. And I thought, wow, that's remarkable. So, yeah, in in the 70s in particular, it was a very androgynous time for for children especially. and You look, there were no pink toy aisles and blue toy you aisles. You talk about
1: how the Sears catalog, something like 98, right. 98% of the toys were not clearly identified no, with boys they, and girls. No,
2: everyone played with blocks. We all watched the Bad News Bears. There wasn't a sense of hyper-masculinity or hyper-femininity. It was cool to be a tomboy. You know, I don't think it's any accident that the two biggest child celebrities in the 70s were Jodie Foster in film and Christy McNichol in television. And they both grew up to be... Out lesbians and everyone wanted to be girls like that Nadia Comaneci. everyone w- wanted to be like that and I think that
1: she's a Romanian gymnast yeah, sorry, for anybody who's date, under 40 yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> but she was very austere she didn't smile she was not all decked out she was just very no-nonsense and it was mesmerizing so I find it really interesting, like, this is a kind of pet theory that I I floated kind of casually in the book, but the more I think about it, I think there might be something here. When it became possible, and I guess it was like in the late 80s, early 90s, to know the sex of a fetus in utero, I wonder if that created a dynamic where parents were subconsciously stereotyping their children. Is there something about coming home from the hospital to a nursery that's decked out in pink taffeta? the the whole Disney princess phenomenon, it would have been unthinkable in the 70s. It would have been uncool. If you were like a girly girl with, you know, if you were running around with fairy wings and in a tutu, that, you know, it's not like you didn't see that, but it just wasn't the sort of like, it it wasn't the cool way to be. And I think that that really sort of wired us up in a certain way. But but this
1: is one of the paradoxes now. I, I was actually at Disney World recently and you've got princesses versus warriors and it's almost like out of the Mad Men era. It's like really yeah. rigid. Yeah. But then you walk onto a college campus, and everything is like, I'm a polyamorous, BDSM, triple lesbian, ultra right. dyke.
2: There should be a theme park for all that stuff.
1: There's an evacuation of the reasonable middle, and the reasonable middle is being male and being female is a thing. It's biology, but that can express itself in all kinds of different ways, just because you like playing hockey doesn't right. mean you're actually a boy and just because you like wearing a dress doesn't always mean you're a girl. How come that that middle ground has been evacuated?
2: I I think about this all the time. I all I can think is, you know, we came into the into the 90s, we started seeing the Disney princess phenomenon you know for us who grew up in this for gen x people there was like the riot girl there was this sort of the punk there was i mean we, you know punk in the 80s and then there was grunge in the 90s and so we were still wearing our flannels and our, our doc martens but then once you got into the early aughts we had the the raunch culture the girls gone wild era Feminism became very sex positive in a way that was really sort of in your face and also not using the word feminist. Let's not forget, it was not too long ago that every celebrity in any interview was saying, well, I'm not a feminist, but it was very uncool to use that word. But I think that somewhere along the line, corporations, you're right, got the idea that they could sell a binary, really, before anyone was using that word. But what's so weird about it is like, there's, we're going, we're back to being obsessed with it. I think when we were growing up, we just, we didn't really think about it. We were the kids. Zoom, zoom. Right. So the Zoom show, yeah. So the Zoom show was this great. It was on PBS. It came out of WGBH in Boston. And the the, the conceit was that the kids did it themselves, that they were like coming up with the ideas and directing. The show and everything, which is some of the ideas absurd. were so
1: terrible that it was actually <laughs> <believe> quite, it? <laughs> it was quite credible. <laughs> but
2: they had, you know, they had like a language that they, the, the Ubby dubby language. It was kind of like a version of Pig Latin that yeah, they did. A and they, it was a cult. It was a cult. It was yeah. a cult. No, I think I guess it, I maybe think, I'm still in it. Well, I think th- 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 in one it. of
1: the trademarks of being in a cult is you don't know you're in a cult. Okay. No one goes around oh, and says, "Yeah,
2: my mind. come join
1: my Zoom cult." Mm-hmm, <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. But again, so you know what I want to do in the book, it. It's a self-interrogation. I don't want to just bang away at, oh, we were better back then. What's wrong with you guys now? I think we have to be really mindful of the, the burdens that some of these later generations are carrying.
1: Well, so you use the term interrogation, and I used it earlier in the interview. You're really hard on yourself in the book. One of the things you do is when you have a thought, you're anticipating what people will say. So you say, well you know, you see somebody complaining about something unjustly and and you say, oh God, toughen up. Oh, but if I say that, then they'll say this and then I'll say this. So it's like before you type a single character, you're anticipating the scripted culture war battle back and forth. It sounds exhausting.
2: It's exhausting and it didn't used to be that way. So in the book, really what I get at ultimately is the question of what's happened to public discourse and what's happened to thinking. So I started off as a writer, as an essayist, in, again, the, the early to mid 90s. I had this great gift of being able to carve out a career for myself as, as a counterintuitive thinker, as a person who's a little bit provocative. I don't consider myself a provocateur, but I really always want to just look at the culture and look at the hypocrisies and look at the places where the 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 assumption was one thing, but people's actual thoughts and feelings were something else. And I wrote controversial pieces and I published them in places like The New Yorker and The New York Times magazine. And it would make people angry and they would write letters to the editor. And maybe I would see those letter, letters six weeks later and I would be on to the next thing by then. And maybe I wouldn't. And, and the thing is, doing that kind of move, asking those questions, making readers uncomfortable was the job. That was the job. If you did that, you got more assignments. You were rewarded. And I I did not, you know, I certainly thought, well, you know, am I getting this right? I want to make sure I'm I'm being thoughtful and accurate here. But I was not looking over my shoulder constantly the way everybody does now, including myself. It really changed When, when Twitter came along. It wasn't even Twitter. I mean, I remember when comments became a thing. So that was probably you know, what, early, you know, around 2000, 2001 or so, the experience of publishing material radically changed because you would write your article and then there would be a comment stream that was, like, many times as long as the piece itself.
1: You use the term essayist. When you look at, say, the review section of the New York Times now, or especially something like Slate or Salon, which I think when they were created maybe 15 or 20 years ago... uh, were dedicated, at least in part, to the essay genre.
2: Absolutely. I read Slate religiously back then.
1: The essay form, at least in the way it presents itself in these media, has very much become a confessional form.
2: Yeah. Or a take. It's a take. It's
1: a take mixed with confession, mixed with accusation, mixed with some testimonial of emotional breakdown. I'm so exhausted. I shouldn't have to say this, but I'm saying it. Has the definition of the word essay, has the very idea of being an essay has changed? Like, tell me about the, the essays that you were writing, say, 20, 25 years ago. Was there less use of the vertical pronoun? Was there less expectation that you were constantly plumbing the depths of your soul for indicators of torment?
2: Oh, yeah. Because torment and trauma, it it, it wasn't the point. It, It was about ideas. I mean, essay goes back to Montaigne. It means to try. You're trying out ideas. To me, my approach as a writer, regardless of genre, really, but especially as an essayist, is not that I'm trying to convince anybody of anything or even confess anything. Certainly not confess. I'm into confiding. Those are two very different things. I want to invite my reader to think alongside me. Because
1: you use yourself as a case study in your book.
2: Yeah. With a book like this you're trying to write about the culture wars I for my knowing my own temperament my own sensibility as a writer I'm not enough of a wonk and I'm not enough of like a policy person to have just written a straight ahead book about what's wrong with with the moment. I knew that the only way I was going to pull it off would be to put it in a personal framing and that's certainly that's you know there are people that don't like that approach and I get that but I just knowing myself, that was really the only way it was going to work. But again, I think getting back to what you're saying, look, it's very, very simple. There aren't enough editors. So I had the benefit of fantastic editors. The pieces that I published in my 20s in The New Yorker and Harper's, they were written and rewritten and rewritten. And I had really rigorous editors and I had fact checkers and there were, there was a certain standard that you had to meet.
1: Things were over edited though. I I, I wrote one (laughs) piece. I wrote one piece for Harper's and by the third or fourth edit, my take on this was like, we're not really improving the piece at this point. This is you justifying that hap- your job. That happens
2: sometimes. This is yes. you
1: justifying your job.
2: Yeah. I It de- I mean, I had editing at the New Yorker that was just, that remains just un- unparalleled. But no, what's happened now, there are people, do, they don't have the time to get the work done. They're not being paid enough. If you've got to file three takes a week, maybe sometimes three takes a day, that's not being an there's also,
1: By the way, there's also the case that If you're an overworked editor who's working on 10 articles instead of two or three, you're probably only going to go with proven pros who you know you're not going to have to rewrite five times. If you don't have time to nurture young talent, you're going back to the usual people who you know you can depend on. And overworked editors means there's just less opportunity for younger writers to develop their craft unless they have some cri de coeur that they're writing in an authentic way that doesn't need much editing because it's their authentic self. Right,
2: or they have a built-in audience that's going to go with them anywhere. But I, I mean, I think there are a lot of young writers out there that if they will be confessional enough, if they will be shocking enough, if they're willing to do it for free, they're willing to put themselves out there, they will be published. And, and I think that's getting back to what you're saying about the editorial pages, the opinion pages, they are choked with... The same narrative again and again about trauma or about injustices that are being told in a way that is entirely predictable. I mean, this whole idea of bringing people out of the margins. I'm sure you saw this study. There was, um, I think it was a actually like a a left leaning polling organization polled Hispanics about what they would like to be called. The Latinx uh, term. Only two percent of Hispanics polled wanted to be defined. as So such. the only <laughs> people
1: I ever see using this Latinx term are like people who are as white as a ping pong That's right. ball. That's yeah. right.
2: That's right. And so, you know, one of the things that people say to me about this book was like, you know, well, it's very easy for you to criticize this incarnation of feminism. Uh, it's very easy for you to come down on this, uh, on the social justice wars, because you're a privileged white feminist. I actually come at this not just as a privileged white feminist, but even more so as somebody with a certain sort of bullshit detector. (laughs) And I don't think that that is something that white privileged people have a monopoly on. All sorts of people are tired of the chokehold in the conversation.
1: Although every hint of racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia is meticulously stripped from woke-approved public discourse, casual ageism is this thing that just gets thrown right. around but like in the weirdest kind of way
2: just like really recently too right yeah. i feel like in the last few weeks or it's, months it's yes sort they're of punching like, up but they're punching up at us
1: i noticed in the book you're somewhat at times abashed about playing that card because then you're portraying yourself as a victim on the other hand if you don't mention it You're not mentioning what has become this huge impediment to discourse. If every piece of discourse is going to be, is going to end with shut up because you're the wrong skin color, you're the wrong age, and I don't agree with your political opinions, I guess you do have to call out ageism, but then you become part of call out culture.
2: We have to admit that what's happened is if you're somebody who asks questions about any sort of Phenomenon related to identity that is now being interpreted as skepticism, and skepticism is being interpreted as leading to harm.
1: Words of violence. So
2: that right. So that continuum is really, really dangerous. But yeah, I mean, what I talk about a lot in the book. This is a very Gen X book, and we are in a weird position as a cohort because we're not digital natives. We, you know, I, my first job out of college, I had a Selectric typewriter at my desk. Like we had a fax machine that was very exciting. And there are just things about my my wiring system as a as a professional person, as an artistic person, as a a, as a person in the world that are really, really different from people even like seven or eight years younger. So I think that, you know, we are in this in this spot of in a lot of ways being sort of obsolete before we're even 50. And and that's something that has not happened in any generational co- cohort until now.
1: We need Matlock to figure this out.
2: Yes. That was not an uplifting note to end on.
1: Well, <laughs> think- I'm going to end on on an even more depressing okay. note. We're having this conversation in New York City and reading your book, there's this sort of melancholy tribute to New York here. You have yes. this fantastic line where because you lived here, when you were very young, you talk about uh, working uh, at a film yeah. institute when you were like 20 yes, years old. Yes, when I
2: was 20 years old. Yeah. I, yes, and now you I'm had like a whole in life center. in California.
1: You've come back. And you said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to mangle your line, but it was something like, uh, it's like getting your clothes back from somebody after they've been worn for 20 it's, years. Oh my
2: gosh, that's such an interesting thing. Um, uh, way of metabolizing that line what I say is I felt I returned to New York when I was in my 40s and I felt like my 20s were being handed back to me in used condition
1: so when someone screws up one of my quotes I'm gonna say oh that's such an interesting way of metabolizing my line which is uh, this super but it's a
2: really like Rorsch- good <laughs> it's like a Rorschach test it's like, yeah. oh, that the clothing and the- that's okay yes.
1: but that was like a super Canadian polite way of saying no that's not what I, I was said. still
2: the thing is I'm still I'm so unfashionable I was probably st- still wearing the same clothing I wore in my but, 20s
1: so I lived in New York briefly I Always told people, I said, New York is this amazing city if you're in your 20s and you have no money, or if you're in your 50s and you have all the money in the yeah, world.
2: Yeah, like Joan Didion said, it's a city for the very rich and the very young.
1: You had this life, it sounds like this carefree life um it's it's you describe I, it as this amazing life was very much in debt where, it was not
2: carefree but yes
1: you described i think you were actually singing music like in a disney a film when you were on your way to work you were so happy oh i
2: was i'm not one of those people who sings no i was i was sort of skipping to work but like yes. birds
1: were landing on your shoulder uh, like as snow white yeah. construction
2: workers were whistling at me and i just gave them the finger behind my right. back just yes. like snow white yes exactly
1: and, and but tell me that sort of almost solipsistic existence would that be possible now where you'd be just checking your smartphone? No, time?
2: it's not. And I don't even think it's solipsistic. I actually, it's funny. I wrote um, a piece recently about the, the great gift of staring at the wall. You know, one of my students said to me, what did you do in your twenties? Like, how did you spend your time? Like, what should we be doing? And I thought to myself, like talking to your I, grandmother. I, I thought to, I know what did you do? <laughs> Have a candy, dear. But I thought, you know, actually, now that I think of it, I spent a lot of time, like, smoking cigarettes and listening to music and staring into space and staring at the window and really thinking. And I would sit there and like, I would write and instead of like the minute I got you know stuck flipping over to Twitter or whatever it was, like I would just kind of sit there and put on music and, and think to myself. And this is a really key thing too, that I've very recently come to realize. We also talked to each other back then in really, it, for much longer periods of time. Like you would come home from work, you would either get together with your friends or you would call somebody up on the phone and you would sit there and you would talk to them on the phone. The phone was attached to the wall. You could not get up. You could not walk around. You were not walking down the street. You were actually having a sustained, focused Conversation with somebody about the issues of the day, or what you were feeling, or what we would now call a microaggression—something happened to you on the street. Oh my gosh, this thing happened. I'm going to call my friend, and we're going to talk about it. And it's going to be processed in a way that is much more authentic and much more realistic, uh, and I think healthy than it would be processed now if you would just go like put it on your on your so Tumblr.
1: Th- this is a subject maybe for another day, but I think your identification of music as a big part of people's inner lives is a huge deal because I, I also remember being in my room and putting on records or tapes or CDs because we're not that old. Yeah, we had CDs uh, and listening to music. But part of that experience was imagining that I was the only person in the world listening to this and that I was the only person in the world understanding just how deep this was. Right. Instead of going on Twitter and saying, Oh my God, the song is so amazing and a hundred people saying, Oh, but didn't you hear the guys in drug rehab and he just hit his girlfriend. Right. That's problematic. He's your problematic a, fave. Or yes. not just that, or that, you know, maybe even sharing right. thoughts that were non-political, right. but just disabusing me of the idea yeah. that I could create a private interpretation of this music that only existed for me. And that made it magical.
2: Yeah. And you know, I wanted my life to look like a movie. So, I grew up. It sounds like we watched, did. Well, yeah. Cause, but I mean, the way I remember, I would watch French films or, you know, a Jim Jarmusch film or something. You a and, badass. A, and a lot of people don't call me a badass. <laughs> a lot of people in those films, they spent a lot of time like looking into space or walking along a field and there's music. You know, you felt like you, ideally you wanted to have these moments in your life where you felt like you were in like an art film. And that, Meant feeling like you were in your life and I never have that experience anymore never like you're constantly just I I don't even listen to music anymore walking down the street do you I listen to podcasts on my on my iPhone and you're part of the problem yeah no and I don't this is not I'm not going to blame this on Millennials this is just the moment where we have all moved past any ability to actually be in our our lives and sort of relish it
1: so you know what's weird My kids, my older kids, they're 14 and 16, they go to movies and movie theaters.
2: Wow. Are you, like, homeschooling them or something? or Are you Amish?
1: (laughs) But I think one of the reasons they do it is for those two hours, they can't turn on their phones. It is a sensory deprivation tank for them. They are self-medicating. Part of them knows that they have to turn the phone off. And the movie theater is one of the few places where you're required to I'm do that.
2: impressed that they can do that because a lot of adults can't stop looking at their phones in a movie theater. So that speaks well to your parenting.
1: I'm a great parent. <laughs> Thank you so much for
2: joining us on the Quillette podcast. Thanks, John. It was really fun.
0: If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you'll find more content.